0: Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's Program Notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caproma. The opening of the new season by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra is September 23rd through the 25th. Ricardo Muti conducts a program including The Overture to the Anonymous Lover by Joseph Bologna, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, and Andante for Strings by Florence Price and Beethoven's Eroica, the Symphony No. 3. Here are Philip Usher's program notes on Joseph Bologne, Chevalier de Saint George's Overture to the Anonymous Lover. The work lasts about eight minutes. History books have long told the story of the trip Mozart and his mother took to Paris in the summer of 1778, where the 22 year old composer had not yet made a name for himself, and how his mother died there on July 3rd, plunging him into one of his darkest periods. But less familiar, is another story. Two days after his mother's death, the 22-year-old composer was taken in by Baron Grimm, and until he left the city on September 11th, he lived in the Baron's palace at 5 Rue de la Chasse in the company of another composer who had already taken Paris by storm, achieving everything there that Mozart had not, the supports of wealthy patrons, widespread public success as a composer and as the conductor of the city's leading orchestra, visibility in the highest social circles. Marie Antoinette, the Queen of France, attended his concerts. She was also one of his students and, in general, enjoying what today we call boldface name recognition. Joseph Boulogne, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, was his name. The fact that the Chicago Symphony Orchestra has never played Saint-Georges' music before this week, when it makes a fitting opening for the first program, reuniting the musicians with their music director since the pandemic began, while Mozart's works have been played by the orchestra every season since it started giving concerts in 1891, is part of a complicated tale. Saint-Georges' life is as remarkable as any of the composer's biographies we know and more unlikely than most. He was born in 1745 as Joseph Bologna on the French Caribbean island of Guadeloupe, the son of a white French plantation owner and his wife's 16-year-old African slave of saint origin. Joseph spent his childhood on the plantation near Bastia. In 1753, his father took him to France for his education. As a teenager, he first drew attention as a fencing master and was soon known as the best fencer in France. He's said to have lost just one match. But he began studying violin and writing music, at first for himself to play, and it was music that became his calling card as a virtuoso violinist, conductor, composer, and empresario. In addition to composing symphonies, string quartets, concertos, and six operas, Saint-Georges also helped arrange the commission for Joseph Haydn's six Paris symphonies, which he premiered with his orchestra in Paris. Many details of his life are shrouded in confusion, starting with his name. The family name is spelled Boulogne, B-O-L, and sometimes B-O-U-L, although the latter is thought to stem from the mistaken identity of his father as a well-known French politician. His true father, a member of the minor aristocracy, apparently held a title and was referred to as de Saint-Georges, after one of his Guadeloupe plantations. In time, Joseph began to sign his name using his father's title, and that is how many people refer to him, although sometimes as Saint-Georges without the S. Later, he also became known as the Black Mozart, which is both misleading, the influence would have been the other way around, and inherently racist, a lasting mark of the prejudice that helped send his music into oblivion and wipe his story from the written histories. The turning point in his fate came when his bid to run the Paris Opera was undermined by members of the company who wrote to the Queen, pleading that they would not work for a man of mixed race. By the time the first orchestras in the United States were founded, his fame had long ago faded, and his music was no longer part of the repertoire. For decades, none of our major orchestras, including those in New York, Boston, and Chicago, programmed any of his music. La Monde, moment or The Anonymous Lover, was Saint-Georges' third opera. It was composed and premiered in Paris two years after he shared lodgings with Mozart and six years before the Vienna premiere of Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. It is the only one of his six operas that survives intact. The plot is a love triangle, Léontine, her friend Valcourt, and a secret lover who turns out to be Valcourt himself it may have struck close to home. Saint-Georges was forbidden to marry within his own social circle in Paris. Thus, his own clandestine romantic life was by necessity shrouded in anonymity. The overture to the opera is a superb example of late 18th century European classicism, stylish, spirited, and memorably tuneful. There are three sections, a fast, curtain-rising allegro, a lovely adagio, and a racing finish. It does not sound like Mozart's music any more than Haydn's music does. Today, it is clear that Joseph Bologna, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, has a distinct individual voice that is no longer anonymous or forgotten. In recent years, Saint-Georges' place in history has begun to draw increasing attention. In 2001, the Paris City Council named a street in his honor. Just off the Place de la Bandoline, the Rue du Chevalier de Saint-Georges carries the composer's name for a full block in the midst of Paris's fashionable 8th arrondissement, where it is anchored by the shops of Max Mara and Christian Le The other Mozart, a picture-book biography for ages 5 through 10, published in 2006, portrays Saint-Georges' life as one of steady ambition set against a backdrop of persistent prejudice. Last year, Disney-owned Searchlight Pictures announced it was developing a new movie biopic about saint George. Clearly, his story will no longer remain untold and his music will no longer be ignored. Program Notes by Philip Husher On music by Joseph Bologne, Chevalier de Saint-Georges And now on to the Andante Moderato by Florence Price. The work lasts about seven minutes. In 2009, a couple began to renovate a dilapidated house they had purchased in St. Anne, a tiny community a little more than an hour south of Chicago in Kankakee County. Scattered across the floor and in piles stacked around the house, they found handwritten pages of music. Many were signed Florence Price. This had been her summer house, long ago abandoned. That discovery jump-started the renaissance of one of this country's most important musical figures, a black woman composer with strong ties to Chicago and to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and her music had been long overlooked, neglected, and dismissed. Price had moved to Chicago with her family in 1927, making the great migration followed by thousands of black Americans fleeing the terrors of living in the South and hoping to find a land of opportunity in Chicago. Price grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. Her father, Dr. James H. Smith, a prosperous dentist, was one of Little Rock's most highly respected black men. Florence attended the same segregated schools as William Grant Still, eight years younger, another groundbreaking black composer. In 1903, Florence began studies at the New England Conservatory of Music in Boston, completing the four-year program in three years and graduating with diplomas in both piano and organ, the only student to receive two degrees that year. After graduation, Florence set aside her musical ambitions. She returned to Little Rock to teach and lived at home with her parents. After her father died in 1910, Florence's mother sold all the family possessions, decided to pass for white, moved back to her hometown of Indianapolis, and vanished into the society of the majority. Florence moved from one teaching job to another, continued to give organ and piano recitals, married Thomas Jewel Price, the attorney who had helped settle Dr. Smith's estate, started a family, and settled into a comfortable middle-class life in a predominantly black neighborhood in Little Rock. Aside from the song she wrote after the birth of her first child, To My Little Son, she rarely found the time to compose anything, but she did not give up. She spent the summers of 1926 and 1927 in Chicago, where she studied composition at Chicago Musical College and no doubt realized that this was the place to build her career and live a better life, remote from the rising racial tension in Little Rock and the attacks and crimes and lynching that had begun to spread throughout the city, sweeping into her family's own neighborhood. Her arrival in Chicago placed her on the cusp of the black Chicago Renaissance. But even in Chicago, composing music did not come easily. After the Depression, her husband was often without work. He grew angry and abusive. He moved out of the family house in March 1930. The next January, Florence was granted a divorce and custody of their two daughters. By then, she had begun to write music on a larger scale, reflecting a new certainty that composing was her calling. The Andante moderato played at these concerts is an arrangement for string orchestra of the slow movement from a string quartet in G major that she composed in 1929. She turned 42 that year. In January 1931, Price began the score that would change her life, a symphony in E minor, her first big orchestral piece. She worked on the score for much of the year, sometimes to make ends meet. She accompanied silent films on the organ in movie houses along The Stroll, a stretch of South State Street between 26th and 39th Streets, the heart of Chicago's black community. As she struggled to put her life back together and become the composer she wanted to be in a world that viewed her through a prism of fierce prejudices, she cannot have dreamed that the most unlikely thing would happen, that Frederick Stock and the Chicago Symphony would give the world premiere of her symphony at the 1933 World's Fair, the Century of Progress Exposition. In the summer of 1932, Frederick Stock, the music director of the Chicago Symphony, had been named music advisor for the exposition set in Chicago to honor the city's centennial, and he began to look around for new scores that would represent the state of music in America. Although Stock did not know Price, he picked her unpublished first symphony as the centerpiece of a concert to be given on June 15, 1933, in the Auditorium Theater. Despite the excitement and the applause at that night's concert, no one at the time entirely recognized the history book significance of the occasion. This was the first performance of a large-scale composition by a black woman composer given by one of the major U.S. orchestras. For many years, Price's story was one of intermittent recognition. In 1964, an elementary school on South Drexel Boulevard in North Kenwood near Price's Old Neighborhood was named for her, but there were very few performances of her music. That has changed. The manuscripts discovered in St. Anne contained many lost works, including two violin concertos and a fourth symphony. Ricardo Muti had planned to give the first Chicago performances of Price's Third Symphony, completed in 1940, in Orchestra Hall in the spring of 2020, but those concerts were among the first to be canceled in the pandemic. He will now conduct the work in May, 89 years after the orchestra unveiled her first symphony. Her second is lost this week's performances of her modest heartfelt andante moderato with its animated and exotic middle section offer but a hint of price's full talent too long silenced program notes by philip husher on an andante moderato by florence price and now on to beethoven's eroica symphony the symphony number no. 3 the work lasts about 50 minutes The story of how the Eroica Symphony got its title is nearly as famous as the music itself. We know that Beethoven intended to name his third symphony for Napoleon Bonaparte and his fight against political tyranny, that he tore up the title page in a fit of rage when he learned that Napoleon had appointed himself emperor, and that he opted for the title Sinfonia Eroica, Heroic Symphony, instead. The subtexts, idealism and disillusionment, personal greed and the lust for power, the struggle between art and politics, among others, are intense, and they have come to overshadow one of the most remarkable, even revolutionary, works of art we have. A century after Beethoven, Toscanini tried to restore reason, famously brushing aside a hundred years of connotations. Some say it is Napoleon, some Hitler, some Mussolini. For me, it is simply Allegro Cambrio. Beethoven had been contemplating a symphony inspired by General Bonaparte since 1798. Most of the music was composed in the summer of 1803, only months after Beethoven wrote his most revealing non-musical work, The Heiligenstadt Testament, a painful confirmation of worsening deafness and thoughts of suicide. It was one of the lowest points in a life that understood despair only too well. The composition of an important and substantial new symphony was Beethoven's great rallying cry, a heroic act in itself. The first draft was probably completed by November 1803. Beethoven's extensive sketches, nicely preserved and often studied, confirmed that the new symphony gave its composer a lot of trouble. In May 1804, when the news reached Vienna that Napoleon had declared himself emperor, Beethoven felt betrayed. According to the account later written by his student, Ferdinand Ries, when he broke the news to Beethoven, the composer went to the table, took hold of the title page by the top, tore it in two, and threw it to the floor. What Ries didn't mention was that Beethoven's own motives were sometimes suspicious themselves. Although Beethoven had long intended to name the symphony after Bonaparte, he quickly dropped that plan when he learned that Prince Lopkowitz would pay him handsomely for the same honor. Later, after he had ripped up the title page, Beethoven temporarily recanted when he realized that a Bonaparte symphony would be just the thing for his upcoming trip to Paris. In 1806, when it came time to publish the E-flat major symphony, Beethoven suggested Sinfonia Eroica," composed to celebrate the memory of a great man, without mentioning Napoleon. Beethoven's last reputed words on the subject, full of the anger and resentment he surely felt, came later, after Napoleon's victory at Jena. "'It's a pity I do not understand the art of war as well as I do the art of music. I would conquer him.' History doesn't tell us what, if anything, Napoleon thought of Beethoven's music. When Cherubini, whom he did admire, once suggested that Napoleon knew no more about music than he knew of battle, the emperor immediately stripped him of his offices and power, leaving him with virtually no income. The Eroica is perhaps the first great symphony to have captured the romantic imagination. It's not as openly suggestive as the later pastoral with its bird calls and thunderstorm, nor as specific as the ninth with its unmistakable message of hope and freedom. But to the Viennese audience at the first performance on April 7, 1805, Beethoven's vast and powerful first movement and the funeral march that follows must have sounded like nothing else in all music. Never before had symphonic music aspired to these dimensions. We're told that a man in the gallery shouted down, I'll give another Kreutzer if the thing will only stop. Audiences then, just as today, brought certain expectations to the concert hall, and knowing the length of a piece is one of them, but Beethoven's Allegro con Brio was longer and bigger in every sense than any other symphonic movement. The first movement of Mozart's Prague Symphony comes the closest. It's also a question of proportion, and Beethoven's central development section, abounding in some truly monumental statements, is enormous. It's been suggested that Beethoven was writing without themes at the beginning of the first movement. The comment is not meant disparagingly, but as proof that the essence of Beethoven's language is not melody, but tension and movement. Donald Tovey insisted that many of Beethoven's themes can be recognized by their bare rhythm without quoting any melody at all. The very opening of the Eroica consists of no more than two E-flat major chords played forte, followed by the cellos jumping back and forth over the notes of an E-flat triad. The first exceptional event comes when the cellos stumble on C-sharp, a note we never expected to hear, and one that opens unforeseen vistas only seven bars into the piece. From there, Beethoven continues to spread his wings, even settling comfortably in the very remote key of E minor, just moments before he whisks us back to the E-flat major chords with which he began. Beethoven's writing, in the most expansive piece he had yet composed, is tight and closely unified. Although analysts often point out the unprecedented use of a new theme in the development section, it's not unique. See Mozart's 33rd Symphony. Nor is the theme truly new. Ries was perhaps the first person to be misled by the premature entry of the horn four bars before the start of the recapitulation, and he lost Beethoven's respect forever when he rushed up to tell him that the player had come in at the wrong place. It's one of Beethoven's little jokes, all the more effective for being told at a whisper. The coda is as big and important as a movement in itself, but something of this stature is needed to bring us back to earth before we move on. The adagio is a funeral march of measured solemnity, pushed forward by the low rumble of the basses like the sound of muffled drums, Beethoven raised some eyebrows by placing the funeral music so early in the symphony, but this is music, not biography, and chronology is beside the point. The two interludes are particularly moving. The first, because it casts a sudden ray of sunlight on the grim proceedings. The second, because it carries the single thread of melody into a vast double fugue of almost unseemly magnificence. The music ends with some consolation but even more, grief. Beethoven's funeral music gives way to a brilliant, though often very quiet, scherzo, just as the prisoners in Fidelio emerge from the dungeon into the blinding daylight. Here, the modest minuet of Haydn and Mozart has become something truly symphonic in scope. Beethoven's finale is a set of variations on a theme he had used several times before, principally in his ballet The Creatures of Prometheus. This is an unusually complex and multifaceted piece of music. It's not just the conclusion, but the culmination of all that came before. Beethoven begins with a simple, unattached bass line before introducing the theme itself— the variety and range of style are extraordinary, a fugue on the bass line, a virtuoso showpiece for flute, a swinging dance in G minor, an expansive hymn. Beethoven moves from one event to the next, making their connection seem not only obvious but inevitable. Some of it is splendid solemnity, some high humor, and Beethoven touches on much in between. A magnificent coda which continues to stake out new territory even while wrapping things up ends with bursts of joy from the horns. Program notes by Philip Husher on Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 3, The Eroica. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.